Hi, this is Jen Morris and Angie Fiedler-Sutton, and you're listening to Episode 4 of Stage Savvy. Welcome to episode four of Stage Savvy. Uh, today we'd like to talk a little bit about opera, and to do so we have a very special guest, David Adams, who is the producing general director of the Civic Opera, as well as a professional opera singer, and he travels all over the country, all over the world actually, and brings his art form and is stationed here in Kansas City. So thank you, David, for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. All right. So tell me a little bit, how did you originally find out that you had this talent? This isn't some talent that everyone is capable of. This is a very unique talent to seeing opera. Actually, I didn't really discover it until I went to college. I went to college with an intention of getting an English degree, and I had received music scholarships from being in choir in, in high school and things. And in doing so, you had to accept the opportunity to take voice lessons. started studying voice, and after the first semester, my teacher said, do you know that you're kind of good at this? <laughs> and I didn't believe her for another semester, and then eventually kind of gave into it. And then the following year, they did a production at the at the university, a, a full opera. They did Puccini's La Boheme, and I had the opportunity to sing a role in that. And then the, the director said the same thing. He said, "Do you realize that you're you're rather good on stage, and you're a lot of fun to watch?" So, and from there, it kind of rolled out. So I started believing what people <laughs> were telling me. Bye bye English. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, why um, operas as opposed to singing any other form that's available out there? Why specifically opera? To be honest, I think it's because it was my first exposure. It was my strongest exposure because the university I attended was, at that time, it was Southwest Texas State University. Now it's University of Texas Southwest. And just when they did operas, the, the music, the theater department and the music department were very separate entities. So we didn't really have much opportunity for crossover. And our first, my first exposure was just to was just to opera in that particular form, so I think that's how I ended up there. But I do, I mean, currently, this summer, for example, I'll be going to Light Opera Oklahoma to sing Che in Evita. So as I've gotten older, I've been more brave in crossing over, I think. So. <laughs> Well, and speaking of crossing over, I mean, as someone who does opera and who's looking into, what would you say is the difference between opera, operetta, and a musical like Evita, which is very much like opera? I mean, there's very little actual dialogue in there, which is one of the tenets of what makes opera opera. Mm-hmm. So why is that not considered opera, but say, you know, da- The Daughter of a Regiment, which I went and saw at the Lyric, which did have dialogue, mm-hmm. why is that considered opera, but Evita is not? Oh, that's a really good question. A lot of it has to do... I. I would say with the intention of the composer and with the time the time period in which it was written. For example, Donizetti's Thought of the Regiment that you, you were speaking of. Donizetti was a famous opera composer, and I think it, it sort of lands in that if it had been written in the 1930s, it probably would fall under the operatic category because of what you said, which is all the dialogue mixed in with the, the operatic arias and, and duets and things. So I think... A small portion of that just falls in what time period in which it was written, because at that at that time, when in Donizetti's time, there wasn't much, there wasn't much operetta going on. That had been a thing of the past. Mozart had sort of dabbled in it a little bit with things like Magic Flute, and uh, Abduction from the Seraglio, and many of those pieces would fall probably again under the category of operetta had they been written in a different time. 
Oh, but there are still operas being written today, right? Yes, absolutely. Mean, absolutely. So today, why is it? I mean, I, I, and I know you probably don't, you may not know. I'm just <laughs> I've always been I, I've been very I'm very new to opera as an art form. I, mm-hmm. I um, as I wrote in my review, um, I didn't really get into it when I was little. What made opera opera kind of as with a lot of people kind of turned me off a little bit. I hadn't wasn't quite ready to enter that all singing plus in a foreign language, which most operas mm-hmm. are typically in a foreign language. Plus the all the trappings that make opera opera, which I love now. I loved the daughter of the regiment. I thought it was fantastic, and mm-hmm. I've I've been gradually getting into opera, but I had never really. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't like it. It's just that I didn't embrace it, if that makes sense. Sure. And so I've just been kind of been trying to figure out why why opera is opera versus a musical. <laughs> <laughs> right, and uh, I guess speaking to that, you it's sort of opera. The vocal demands generally speaking, are different than, than they would be in, say, a musical theater piece, even things that are being currently written. But having said that, taking a step back, the compositions that are coming out now, for example, I mean, these are slightly dated, but are slightly older, I shouldn't say dated, Little Women and Dead Man Walking. And these operas that are being written are um, stylistically, they're still, they still fit all the tenets of opera, which is the non-amplified voice, the use of a non-amplified voice over an orchestra and that type of thing. But a lot of musical theater, the lines are starting to blur mm-hmm. between them. The vocal demands on musical theater pieces are, I don't want to say rising, because that makes them sound as if they weren't already challenging. Right. The, the challenges are becoming similar between opera and musical theater as new composers create works. Well, I mean, Sweeney Todd, for example, I would consider that almost opera. Exactly. Because it's, it's very, I mean, challenging. I mean, I was reading a lot of the... Uh, makings of when they were making the movie version of it and how they did have Sondheim on set to make sure that uh, especially uh, what's-her-face that played Mrs. Lovett that because that is a very difficult role for a woman to do there especially like by the sea there is pretty much it's like a five-minute song where there is no place for you to take a breath mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly well and there's others there's Candide which is a famous theater piece you know from the 60s by Bernstein, and it's been revived and revived, and it's in a, it's in yet another revival now, and it it is the type of piece just like Sweeney Todd that can be an opera company can take it on just as easily as as any theater company could could and present it you know, present it easily and, and beautifully. And welcome to the show, Finn, again. Yeah, <laughs> bonked his head. I do apologize, Dave. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, well, I mean, it's, again, what, the opera it was your first choice. Mm-hmm. You, so you've been doing this since? Since, uh, well, professionally since probably 1993, I would say. And I was a, talking about, without going too far down the road, a voice type. I was a baritone for a number of years before that. And I started my, my career as a tenor in 1993. My career as a... Baritones started probably in, in about 87. So it's, yeah. Baritones higher? Baritone is a, lo- this is lower. a lower. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like I remember vaguely, but I just know I, I think I'm a baritone. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your professional career and then what you experience in other locations, because I know you go everywhere. Mm-hmm. How that compares to opera here in Kansas City and kind of what Kansas City audiences have the opportunity to see. Mm-hmm. So I know traveling in, into other cities, the way that they, the way that we're treated by by companies, and I know that the the lyric does the same here for their for their singers that they bring in. They contact us well in advance of of the needs. Sometimes it's a year out, 
but I've also had you know opportunities where I've received an email from my agent saying, can you get on a plane tomorrow because so-and-so has gotten ill and they need you in <laughs> Dallas or something like that. But generally, you know well in advance, so you can prepare, and you're sent schedules and sent contracts and sent all the information. Everything is pretty much set up so when you step off the airplane, you walk right into the situation and it's as smooth as possible. And that's that's been my experience across the board, regardless of the size of the company. I've worked with some very small regional houses and I've had the, the opportunity to work at, at some of the, end quote, finer houses in, in the U.S. And uh, in any event, you're always sort of you're treated with this with a certain level of, of respect, and everyone expects the best of you, and, and they create the environment that you can you can come and offer that, which is really a fine thing. And I think that um, as far as audience things go, compared to other cities and in Kansas City, I think Kansas City has. I mean, that's sort of what brought me here. Kansas City has a wonderful, diverse community in the number of community theaters that exist, for example, uh, Metropolitan Ensemble Theater and Civic Opera Theater of Kansas City, and there's KC Metro, uh, Metro Opera, I believe now, and then there's also the Lyric, and there's Kansas City Chorale. There's, whether you like choral music or you like opera or musical theater, there's a little bit for just about anything you want to find in Kansas City. So, Excellent. And I, and I know that I've been to, to several events, to several operas, and I, there's a huge crowd every mm-hmm. time I go. And I think a general consensus sometimes is that it's maybe a di- an old-fashioned art form or a dated or something well, that like that. But be my next question. there's mm-hmm. a lot of new works coming out. For example, when the Civic Opera did Transformations, or, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, that's a newer work, something like that. Is it still very valid in reaching out audiences today? I think it is. And I, uh, there was a time when I was a little worried for the history or the future of opera because of the way, the way media has changed. Mm-hmm. And with the, I hate to say it, but with the invention of reality television and certain television shows that promote singing and, and create singing careers that don't last long for singers and I'm not going to name the names of the shows because I believe you know who they are not a, big, not a big fan <laughs> yes it's, it's sort of glorified karaoke but what opera has done at least what I've noticed in the US and I think it's always been this way in Europe they continually they're coming with new ways to present old old operas they'll take Mozart operas and, and make them contemporary setting and turn them into make them look like a soap opera which basically it is and uh as far as new works go, there are tons. And uh, Jake Hagee, uh, Mark Adamo, these are two composers that I can pull off the top of my head that are just writing beautiful stuff based on, again, little women, based on stories that are contemporary. And I think opera has learned that in order to survive, given the way media has changed things, and film, you know, the, the, the film version of Sweeney Todd and things like that. Opera has learned that it needs to also be a part of the blurring of the line. Now, there, now will that, is that going the whole way up the chain? Not necessarily. Although, within the past five years, I know that at the Met, they did uh, A View from the Bridge, the opera version, they did The Great Gatsby. There's been a number of, again, innovative composers creating innovative works that are still operatic in nature, so that larger companies are willing to get behind them and support them and give them the financial work that they need. Well, and along those lines, uh, as I mentioned before, opera has a certain sense about it that it's this not-to-be-touched, put-on-a-pedestal type of art form, which does scare a lot of people Mm -hmm. into trying it. I mean, that was 
not the full reason why I, I stayed away from opera, I'll readily admit, partly was because my mother liked it, and I went through that phase of not doing anything that my mother liked. <laughs> um, but, you know, what would you say to, to someone who has that impression of opera, that it's something that is to be revered as opposed to embraced, and so they don't want to try and even go there? Why should they try opera? Uh, my my first answer is why not give it a try. <laughs> I mean we we've all <laughs> we've all done things and gone nope that's not really for me and and maybe that'll be the the case there with a with a first time opera goer. But again because of the way companies are now being innovative, they're not doing they're still doing traditional productions of things mm-hmm. of course. And some some operas do not translate well into like for example Turandot which I believe is being presented by the Lyric in the new, in the new, new theater in their next season. Turandot is not an opera that you could really take and set in modern day and have it make any sense. But I think people are, people are steered away from it because of exactly what you've mentioned. And you picture, you mention opera to people that are, un, that are not steeped in the idea, in the culture of opera, and they picture the, the horns, and they still picture this, the horns and the spears and all that kind of stuff. And it's really not about that anymore. It's a much more accessible art form than people give it credit. Well, and the proverbial fat lady. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, they're always waiting for her to come and sing, and, and sometimes she does. And uh... <laughs> I was reading an article. I want to say it was on Arts Journal because that's where I get a lot of my arts news. Where uh, someone was mentioning that ninety percent of us in today's generation, our first experience with opera was with Looney Tunes mm-hmm. and how much opera music they actually utilized in those early cartoons, not just when they were mocking, you know, doing the parodies of operas, but just in the general plot lines. A lot of it had opera music in the background. And so it's one of those things where, you know, if the Looney Tunes people can do opera, oh, then that should be something that anybody can embrace. Well, one of the things I'm getting ready to gear up for is um, in October, the theater communications group for the last, I want to say, eight years or so has been doing Free Night of Theater. And the whole point of it is to broaden theater to people who are non-theater goers who go two or less times a year. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they've approached, one of the re- how I'm approaching it is I'm asking for theater missionaries. I'm, I'm calling it a missionary, and I'm using the whole religious concept that we want to turn people to our our love and our religion of, of the love of theater. How would you share the love as an arts lover yourself, not just of opera, but of just performing arts? Well, I think. My personal take is what's already being done by so many companies, and that's creating educational outreach through this. And by doing so, a lot of companies, they're developing a young audience. And I think that it, that's where some of it lies also. There was, there was a period when opera was not appreciated, so there's a bit of a generation gap in opera. And a lot of opera companies have, have begun creating... Uh, taking usable stories like The Three Little Pigs and Red Riding Hood and creating operas around them. And then they farm those out to the elementary schools. And then you, you suddenly... It's a, it's a matter of just training the ear to listen to this type of thing. But a lot of companies are doing this. And all the way up to the Metropolitan Opera, they have an educational outreach program. Chicago Opera, the uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago, has a wonderful program that uses the Chicago Symphony. So it's a great opportunity for the singers as well. They get fine entertainers to come in and do these outreach programs for small children. The Lyric, a few years back, I'm not sure if they still do it or not, used to do something sort of like a date night where they would open up a dress rehearsal and they would advertise it to all the high schools mm-hmm. and the colleges in the area and say for $10 you can come in you can and bring a date and watch our final dress rehearsal and 
that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of reaching out into the communities from the opera companies that's really helping in that vein. Well, excellent, excellent. Well, Dave, when's the next time we'll see you perform in this area? I know you're off jet setting. Huh. Um, <laughs> actually, it'll be a little while before I everything I have coming up for the for the rest of the year is going to be away. But I, you know, I do sing at a church and I sing at Unity Temple in the Plaza on the fourth Sunday of every month, and so I do little things here and there. But well, and the Lyric Opera is getting ready to do the Marriage of Figaro. Yes. So that's coming up. I want. Is that anybody? I'm assuming it's in April since we were reading it in Weekend Stage. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so um, an opera opportunity. They are doing the the opera version of Frost Nixon in the Performing Arts Center next year as part of their season. I mm-hmm. had heard that when I was at the Daughter of the Regiment. Nixon so. in China. Yes. Right. Anything else? Um, that pretty much covers it. Dave, we really appreciate you coming in and um, promoting uh, opera as an art form. It's still very valid, and we encourage everyone to take the opportunity to go see a performance if they haven't been there before and to return if they have before. Yes, please. <laughs> please do. We're going to take a short little break, and we'll be back, and we'll do theater audience etiquette uh, and editorial. <laughs> Hi, this is Bill Claus from KKFI, and you're listening to Stage Savvy. Welcome back to Section 2 of Stage Savvy Audience Etiquette. Who wants to go on a rant first? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe first, before we go on stories, maybe we should talk about some general rules that audience members should keep in mind. They tend to be very general knowledge, but... As you're about to hear from all of our stories, not everyone pays attention. Yeah, I think a lot of it just boils down to just being aware that you are not the only person in the audience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Being considerate. And and being considerate and being polite. And the the sad part is that while you do tend to come across it in theater a lot, it's not just in theater. I've had a lot of instances in group meetings as well as at the movies, um, any place where there's a public gathering where these things have happened as well. But it's just so much more apparent in theater because you have live actors on the stage mm-hmm. who are concentrating on trying to remember their lines and or songs and or dances and or all three. <laughs> and so a lot of it, you know, obviously turn your cell phones off unless there is a specific reason to keep it on. Uh, there, there's one theater company, I want to say in Boston, I read online that was trying to do a, a new thing with Twitter, where they had a special section cordon off for people to specifically tweet during the performance. And they kept them separate from the rest of the audience so their cell phones wouldn't, and they had to make sure the cell phones were on dim so the bright light wouldn't annoy people. Mm-hmm. But they were pl- choying with the fact of trying to get tw- tweets during the performance. And they actually found out that it did kind of work in a way. It did bring up interest. It didn't interrupt it. None of the other audience members that were unaware of the situation complained or you know, said there's a person with their cell phone on. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, if that's allowed, then by all means keep your cell phone on. But be aware that, again, turn your cell phone, you know, make sure it's the volume's off. They, they did have a certain set of rules as to make sure that their sound was off, that the light was dim when they were utilizing the cell phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's the old school, don't open your cough drop in the middle of a dramatic moment. <laughs> uh, please open your cough drops and your hard candies beforehand. And you'd be surprised, but in the story, I, I have a story for that at, from Giselle <laughs> that I just saw. So, um, And also, no flash photography. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. A, copyright issues. 
it's illegal. B, also, it really can affect the actors or performers, whoever's on stage. You can blind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to remember those lights are very bright. So it there's a reason why there is no flash photography. Well, and along that line of copyright, too, it's not, a ma- not even just a matter of copyright of the piece or the work itself, but a lot of having dealt with this, in, being in a hiring capacity, directors' works, their predic- their particular production is also copyrighted. Mm-hmm. And if you take a photo of it, in that way you, you are liable to you know, have, a, have a problem with the directors' unions as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. But going back to the cell phone thing, I, uh, it's, I can sum it up by saying, remember that the, while the actors and uh, singers and performers are enro- and, you know, completely engaged in their performance, they can still see you. <laughs> I was just recently involved in a production, uh, as of last weekend, in fact, where I was sitting there and there was a certain conservatory student who was sitting and he was texting his friends the entire performance. And if you think that's not distracting to your audience members, if you, know, if you find that's not distracting or distracting to the performers, then it's a really sad day. Yes, remember that there are other people in the room. And I love hearing this Boston story. That's, that's really a brilliant idea because I know how, while I'm not personally a tweeter or a Twitter or a, I think I might be a twit sometimes, but <laughs> uh, whatever the, the proper verbiage is for that, at the same time I do. I, that, that's great that you can you can develop this sort of well, instant like a, buzz. And like I said, they made sure everybody you know that the actors knew that it was happening, so it wasn't one of those things where they were like, "Wait a minute, that person's not paying attention." They were seated more towards the back of the theater, so it wasn't something that was very obvious to the actors mm-hmm. um, and the the other audience. So it was they were very aware in terms of presenting it, so it was as undistracting as possible, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't something like where they feel like they were splitting their focus, right? And I know talking about the cough drop thing. I was at a, I was in a performance in New York in one of the, one of the larger theaters, and they had they went through a brief phase of uh, it was at Carnegie Hall, I think, and they would have a a person, the ushers, with baskets of cough drops, and an empty basket. And if you took a cough drop, they insisted that you unwrap it and put it in your mouth and put the wrapper in the basket before you go and sit down. Just preemptive strike on the on the uh, accidental cough that'll distract someone. Nice. So. And it worked pretty well. <laughs> well, I mean, and speaking with Giselle, I went and saw Giselle uh, last Saturday, and there is this moment, uh, if you don't know the story, the whole plot is that Giselle uh, dies in the first act and becomes a ghost to haunt one of her uh, lovers, or not haunt, but help one of her lovers not get haunted in the second act. Second act, she's you know pleading to save his life, and he's pleading to, to not die and all that, and there's this moment where it's just very dramatic, and suddenly two rows behind me, I hear Crinkle, 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 crinkle. Right, and I mean everything else was dead silent. There was no music. There, was, it was that moment where you had to just have the moment, and that's when they chose to unwrap their thing. <laughs> they couldn't do it when the music was at its loudest. No, they had to do it when it was complete silent, and you had to have that moment, and it just completely ruined that dramatic moment for me because all suddenly I was taken out of that believability, and, sure. and that's a good chunk of it. And if you're one of those people that's like, oh, I always turn off my cell phones and, and all that. I, there's a moment at Park College back when I was still helping out there. We had an item in the program. We had a curtain call speech about it. Or not curtain speech about it. We had the house usher, the house manager, every person that came in said, please turn off your cell phones. Middle of Act 1, we still, with all three of those items in place, still had a cell phone go off. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yep, it happens everywhere. And it's, you know, if it does happen to you, please be courteous and turn it off immediately. Don't sit there and go, it's not mine. It's not mine. Or even worse, answer it. Yeah. Which is what this lady did. (laughs) And then proceeded to have her conversation (laughs) during the show. Speaking of the lyric opera, and, you know, there is a sense of place. Uh, We were talking about there is a, a sense of putting it on the pedestal and and I will admit there is the opera has a sense of place especially on opening night it Mm -hmm. would be a different story if this was happening on the when I went to Giselle at the matinee I did not expect dressier clothes because it was a Saturday afternoon but when when I went to see the lyric opera it was opening night on top of the fact that it was lyric opera and there was a guy two rows in front of me Front row, by the way. So he had to pay some pretty hefty prices unless he got the tickets for free. Mm-hmm. Wearing a uh, rock and roll t-shirt and a baseball cap backwards and jeans. And jeans are fine. You can pr- pull off the professor look, especially if you have a jacket on there. There was a guy, a other guy there who had jeans and a jacket and had that, you know, liberal professor look going for him. And that actually worked for him. But this guy was so obviously not wanting to be there because of how he dressed. And because, and it's like, and they left intermission and didn't, didn't come back. And I was like, you know, if you're going to pay, I can't, don't know off the top of my head what the charges for the tickets, because I get mine free since I reviewed them, reviewed it. But, you know, you're paying 40, 50 bucks a ticket, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be paying that kind of thing, you know, make sure you're having a, giving it the respect it deserves. Right. right. Well, and branching off of that, when I was in New York, I was in college and we did a contemporary American theater class where basically went to New York and watched a whole bunch of shows. It was a fabulous class. Uh, But we also looked at some classical pieces, and one of the things we did is we went to the Metropolitan Opera, which is, as you know, one of the world-class operas, and we were all college students. We didn't realize it was opening night of Madama Butterfly, and so we're wearing our Sunday best. We weren't there totally schlubbing. But Sunday best from the Midwest is trash <laughs> in the middle of the New York elite. And uh, we were horribly made fun of by all of these rich, well-to-do people. They're like, they should throw out the trash. They should let these people in. Because hmm. they're all wearing drawer and all these fancy you know, get-ups. I think one lady had the exact dress that I saw on a Vogue. Wow. That month. So, um, yeah, these were wealthy mm-hmm. to do. So, uh, you know, maybe not. There is being appropriate. And uh, at that moment, we were not. We just didn't know it. Lynn, <laughs> as we hear Finn in the background, dare we talk about babies? Yes. And I think <laughs> another thing to talk about is what is the appropriate age to take a child to the theater? Because it seems to be the standard five-year-old policy. But I think it depends a lot on... What the show is. The show is. And the length of the piece. The length of the piece. And knowing your child. I mean, for example, Chuck, my husband, he has a 12-year-old, but the 12-year-old is autistic, and a lengthy show would not do well, whereas his 8-year-old, even though younger, could probably sit through an entire piece and do fine. Mm -hmm. It's got to be one of those things where you have to decide individually, but my story, this is my (laughs) best audience etiquette story ever. I was in a production of To Kill a Mockingbird, which, you know, is a happy ghost story. (laughs) (laughs) I was an extra, um, and there was a lady in the audience who had her baby with her who started crying in the middle of the courtroom scene where they're, you know, prosecuting uh, the gentleman for for the rape, and she didn't leave. She stayed in her seat. Baby kept on crying. The guy playing the sheriff 
finally just had enough, and he he would have occasions where he would go off book anyway um, because he had very few lines, but he had to keep on getting the one of the characters who was getting belligerent. He'd always have to shut him down, and each night he would throw in something different. And one, and this night he finally had enough. He said, "You know what? You're acting like a baby in court," and he pretty much stared directly at this lady. Still didn't leave. <laughs> I mean, it was like, could she not have noticed that this was directed at her? But, I mean, that's one of my favorite improv lines ever. You're acting like a baby in court. Yeah, if you have a baby, just don't take them. Find a sitter for the evening. End of story, I don't... Finn's a great baby. Still would not take him to a performance. That's just... That's a gamble. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to end up leaving early. Or getting, you know, dealing with issues. So just, just don't. That's the end of the story. Don't. Yeah. And then the final um, audience etiquette is uh, back to that whole be aware that you're not the only person in there. If you are going to talk to your date or your friend or whatnot, try and keep it relatively quiet or, you know, make. It, I, I've learned because I'm there usually as a reviewer anyway, I'll write notes and then at the intermission I'll, I'll make my little comments to my, my husband. But there was an instance at, uh, a couple of times actually at Starlight where I was sitting behind these uh, two old ladies who pretty much gave a running commentary of what was going on on stage the entire time. And it got to the point where, unfortunately, I can't remember what the show was, but it wasn't wasn't the best show in the world. And it got to be almost misty, Mr. Science Theater 3000 style, where I actually found some of their comments more entertaining than the show itself. But it was just one of those things where it's like... I was totally aware of it. And it wasn't that they were knocking it, although that's that's pretty bad, too. It was just like, okay, in this scene, the guy kisses the girl, and what did he say? I don't know. And it's like, oh, wow, did you just see that? It's like, okay, you know, I, I can hear every word you're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember, even if it's a bad show, those performers and the tech individuals, all of those people got there to, together to do a piece of art that day. Please be considerate. Even if it's crap. <laughs> yeah, if, if you have to make snarky comments, Rich and I have a rule. We never say anything about the the show we just saw until we get into the car. Mm-hmm. Even if it's nice. We, you know, we'll say thank you to, if anybody we know is there, we'll say thank you and we'll talk casual talk. But if anyone asks me what I thought of it, I'll, be, I'll just give them very generic rules. Because I feel that that's not the proper time and place to say anything, even if it's positive, because I know what it's like to be on that side, and I know how close you are to the play at that point, and how hard it is to even take constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, well, this could have been faster and whatnot. You know, you immediately come to the defense because you just got done four weeks of your life doing the show. You know, what does this person think they know? Right, yeah. right. And, and so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, no. I was just going to say, sort of along those lines, uh, and this is as a performer. Stay till the end, and the end isn't when the orchestra stops. The end is when the applause ends and the curtain comes down. Yes. Your parking validation is not going to cost you that much more if you hang out and actually applaud for the people that just gave, as you mentioned, four weeks of their lives putting this piece together and just gave you an, uh, everything they had. And again, your opinion of it, let that sit on the side. But there's nothing more saddening than when you walk out for a bow and you see two-thirds of the audience, and I've seen this at the Metropolitan Opera, even, people running for their cars because they would rather beat traffic than stay and applaud and thank the people for offering what they had to give. Starlight's the worst. I mean, I in my review of the producers of Summer, I started the review by saying how much similar Starlight has in common with the Royals game. 
I mean, from the cups and the from the seats that you're sitting in to the fact that you do the national anthem to the fact that you get the ninth inning stretch of people running for their cars. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and you know, branching off of that, staying till the end. Standing O or no? Do you do an ovation? Do you not? And that's completely up to the theater goer at that moment. I know performers tend to be a little more persnickety. And I know for myself, you don't get a standing O unless I thought it was amazing. And that's not me being a jerk face. It's just, that's just my way of appreciating those who go above and beyond. Yeah, standing O still stand for something, as a friend of mine said. I think it might have been you. (laughs) Yes, it might have been. Um, and it's perfectly okay, even if you don't give a standing ovation, to thoroughly enjoy the piece and to thank uh, the performers for for their work. Um, but you know, should you stand o or should you not? That's that's your decision. You don't have to do it just because everyone else is. Well, and back to the whole not leaving early. If if it is a really bad play, which I've experienced more than my fair share of that, if you feel like you can't stay to the end, leave it intermission. Don't leave in the middle of the you know if you, or leave it a scene break. Mm-hmm. You know, don't leave in the middle of the show unless you absolutely have to. You know, it's an emergency. You have to go to the restroom. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking of going on applause, appropriate times to clap. Actually, that's I'm gonna. That's... I, I need to write an article, especially with opera and and symphonies. There is a time and a place to to applaud, and it's getting harder and harder to figure those out. When I was at Giselle, it was there were a couple times when a a couple people applaud, and I'm like, I don't think this is a good time to applaud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it? I've noticed this lately. Scene changes. Like, I understand when it's the end of a song, a musical, or the you know, during anything that's musical. You always applaud the end of the song. I understand it. But now I've noticed, like, the lights dimmed for a scene change, and everyone applauds. I've, I don't know what this new... I've noticed that, and I'm like, okay, it's a scene change, people. It's not the intermission. And even intermission, you shouldn't... Jackies. That's the short attention span thing. <laughs> they're like, oh, is it over? Wait, it's starting again. <laughs> well, any other uh, audience etiquette tips and or stories? Oh, mm. there's always plenty, but yeah, always plenty. we are limited on time. Yes. <laughs> Before we head off to our break in our final section, uh, we say give you information about feedback. If you have your own audience etiquette stories, by all means, please share. Um, we'll give you that contact information as soon as we take a break. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Stage Savvy in affiliation with Casey Stage Magazine. Casey Stage, all the revelry of a cast party and none of the hangovers. Thank you for listening to episode four of Stage Savvy, hosted by Jen Morris and Angie Peterson. We hope you enjoyed it, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can send us comments in several ways. You can comment on the blog posting for this podcast over at angiefsutton.wordpress.com, which is A-N-G-I-E-F-S-U-T-T-O-N dot wordpress.com which is also where you'll find the show notes for this podcast including some links of some of the things we talked about in this episode you can also email a-f-i-e-d-l-e-r a-fiedler at kcstage.com or if you'd like to comment um, or be on the podcast you can leave us a voicemail at 816-23-STAGE please indicate you're calling about the podcast as this is the regular phone number for KC Stage Magazine We'd like to thank KKFI FM 90.1 for letting us record this podcast in their lovely studios, as well as Jason and Bauer, who wrote the great theme music, a variation of I Got Rhythm. And we'd also like to thank David Adams for joining us today. 
Since this is an audio podcast, we're ending each podcast with a song usually written um, or performed by a local musician. If you're a musician and would like us to highlight something you've written, just send us a note. Again, either by email, A-F-I-E-D-L-E-R, A-Fiedler at kcstage.com, or by calling 816-23-STAGE and mentioning this podcast. Uh, today, we'd like to feature Paula Crawford. And you, we've got a great song called Let It Go. And just some information about her, you can catch her somewhere in Kansas City as a solo artist or in her duo with Jason Babone. Uh, you can catch her as a shaker shaking and backup Vox Batgirl in the band Billy Bats. Uh, she has one CD currently and already has some songs picked out for the next. Uh, she likes to express her art and she is so thankful for this gift and she enjoys bringing the joy uh, to others and the comfort it provides. So let's listen to Let It Go. And by she can be found at ReverbNation.com slash Paula Crawford. So I'll have that link on the show notes as well. Here we go. Let it go. Savvy is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org.